Good morning. Thanks for being here today. Uh, we call this our family gathering because we gather as the family of God, and so we're uh, thankful for His grace on us uh, through Jesus to just be able to call one another brother and sister to enjoy uh, green pancakes and all kinds of craziness downstairs, and uh, but also to be able to open God's Word and to see what He has for us as a community. Um, and so we're going to do that uh, this morning. We are uh, doing a series called Upside Down Axioms. And uh, an axiom, uh, just to define that term, is kind of a self-evident truth. It's something that is a widely held assumption by uh, a, a large group of people. And uh, we're, we're kind of applying that to Jesus um, in, uh, in kind of a sarcastic way because... Uh, many of the things that Jesus says uh, seem evident only to Jesus. <laughs> uh, because he says so many different things that are confusing or controversial. Uh, and so what we're doing as a church is we're looking at those, uh, those passages, the ones that, that cause us the most difficulty, that, that, that enables to kind of scratch our heads and go, what does he mean by that? Um, because as a church in 2019, we're... We're trying to be serious about following Jesus, and we can't do that if we're just following the parts of him that we understand. We want to understand our Savior and our King in his fullness, and that means looking at the places that are sometimes uncomfortable for us to look. Uh, now, we, we've gone through several of um, kind of the, the most difficult ones or the most famous ones. Last week we went through uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the unpardonable sin. And um, that one, I think, more than anyone, not only is it the most famous, but it's the one that I got the most um, feedback on, we'll say. And um, had a, a lot of great conversations with people throughout the week. And some people came to me and said, I've never heard it that way. And it really made me think. And there are other people that said, I've never heard it that way. And here's why I think you're wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> um but it's good. Um, we, we should be dialoguing around these things. And, uh, and, and many of them are unclear, and hopefully God, through this process, God is making them more clear to us. Um, today, we're going to be in um, maybe the, the least famous uh, in terms of the ones that we're going to cover throughout this series. But it's still confusing and uh, still incredibly relevant. So I didn't choose this one necessarily because it was... Um, well-known, but I, I chose this one because the questions that it digs out are well-experienced. So let's see uh, what that means. In, uh, we're going to be in Luke 13, the first nine verses, and the verses will be on the screen. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, 
For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Pretty clear, huh? (laughs) Now, you may not have um, heard this passage before, and that's okay. Um, So you might be asking, why? what relevance does this have? What what difference does this make uh, for us? Yes, it's confusing, but why cover it? And um, Jesus is uh, he's presented with a couple uh, current events that were happening in his day, and he's commenting on those. There were two disasters that had recently happened. One was an act of terrorism, and one was a natural disaster. And everyone knew about these things, and so they're coming to Jesus. He's been um, teaching and traveling, and he's made a name for himself as a man of God and a, a wise rabbi. And people want to know, what do you have to say about these current events, Jesus. What, what's your take on these things? And uh, the first of them, the terroristic event, is in verse 1. And uh, Pontius Pilate, this is what happened, uh, who was the Roman governor of Judea, he uh, had political enemies. And um, you didn't just slander your political enemies during the first century. You slayed your political enemies if you were in power. Um, and so what he does is he... He takes uh, a group of his henchmen and he goes and he finds his political enemies. And rather than discovering them at a time where they could have defended themselves, uh, these these henchmen are sent out to find these enemies of Herod um, or Pontius Pilate while they were worshiping. They were offering sacrifices in the temple. And while they were offering their sacrifices... They were cut down themselves. They were murdered, and their own blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that they were offering. That's pretty gruesome, right? Who does a thing like that? The second one is a natural disaster, and Jesus himself brings this up in verse 4, and he says uh, there was a a natural disaster that happened where um, on the corner of two walls around the city of Jerusalem, there was a reservoir called the Pool of Siloam, and people used to go into that pool seeking healing, and, and um, kind of a community had formed uh, that would rally kind of at that pool every day. But above that pool was a large stone tower, and that tower collapsed onto the pool, and 18 people were killed. Now here's, here's the question that Jesus is being presented with. See how relevant it is. Why? Why did these things happen? Why did it happen to them? Why do bad things seem to happen to those kinds of people? Or to these kinds of people? Why does it seem like some people have all the luck and some people have none of it? Why do these things happen? Now, can you see why we might dive into a story like this? Because... Um, everyone asks this question at some point. And the truth is, even if you're not asking it at this point in your life, there are people around you who are. Um, Why did that hurricane wipe out thousands of people? Why were 50 Muslims slain while they worshipped at their mosque in New Zealand? Why did an airplane go down suddenly and over 100 people were killed? Why 9-11? Why do these things keep happening? 
if you've bumped up against anyone in life, especially people that um, maybe don't yet believe in, in Jesus or aren't part of the church, this is usually the number one sticking point when it comes to God or when it comes to faith, which means as the family of God, we better have a good answer. We better know Jesus' mind and his heart when it comes to these things. Because if we don't, we're ill-equipped to answer the primary thing that's on most people's minds when it comes to God and faith. It's, it's crucially important. And um, maybe this passage more than any other one, Jesus just dives straight into it. And he doesn't pull any punches. And it turns out that his way of seeing tragedy is completely upside down from the wisdom of the world. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus goes into this and he explains both what the answer is not as well as what the answer is. So he kind of debunks the the myths when it comes to tragedies, but he also tries to build a, a new understanding to help us understand why these things take place and how to perceive them when they do. Now, here's what he does to debunk the, the um, kind of the common understanding, the common wisdom, is that there, there are a few normal ways that the world kind of sees tra- tragedies, and Jesus directly challenges them. So l- let me add, we often dialogue here, but just maybe briefly, when tragedies happen, what are some of the normal ways that people go about looking for an answer what do they when when the question of why comes up what are some of the fill in the blanks that people give when it happens yeah yeah you have to blame somebody that's the default mechanism of the human heart is to find someone responsible now let me ask a follow-up question who then do we look to for responsibility God, yep, certainly. The people who live there, yep. Ourselves. Satan, yep. Yeah, they're they're associates. <laughs> they're um, they're accomplices. <laughs> yeah, the generations that came before them and their way of seeing the world. There are a lot, right? But here's the thing. This is my theory. They tend to break down into two categories. Um, That generally when people... And I think that that when something happens, you look for who's responsible. And you begin looking around at the situation and you immediately try to place blame on one of two groups. You either try to place blame on the victims... Or you try to place blame on the perpetrators. It's usually one or the other. Nice. Who in the world will put blame on the on the victims, right? I mean, we just don't think that way today, right? We'll look at um, verses two and four because Jesus' answer is pretty telling. He says, "Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way, or do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem?" In other words, Jesus' audience clearly thinks that the victims were the ones that were responsible. That they were worse sinners. That they were more guilty. That somehow they did bring it on themselves. And I think, why in the world would anyone think this way? 
Well, it's because they, like many of us, we fall into the lie and the trap that I brought up last week. That if I live a good life, then I get a good life. Right? You live a good life, you get a good life. God owes you for your good life. And if you don't live a good life, then what God owes you is the opposite of a good life. So if I obey Him, He'll bless me and He'll answer my prayers. If I'm a decent person, then the universe will reward me with good things. See, we often think of this as the, as the karma approach to life. Right? Um, and uh, that way of thinking is everywhere, actually. It's not just a karma way of thinking things. It's a religious way of thinking things. And we, we, we tend to think of karma... Well, I, I would say the world would tend to think of karma as basically a good thing. That it sort of keeps people in check, keeps them kind of living a good life. It makes them work towards good things rather than bad things because they're essentially afraid that if they don't, then bad things will come their way too. But here's the thing. If you, if you think that if I live a good life, then I'll get a good life, then that means that the opposite also has to be true. So if things aren't going well in your life, if things aren't going according to your plan, then you must have done something wrong to deserve it. That somehow you're being punished for some reason. See, because if, if the positive side is true, then the negative side also has to be equally true. I, I did a search kind of like for karma quotes. And, um, you know, something like, you know, 12 billion things came up. <laughs> from like all walks of life and all different kinds of groups of people. And I, I, I selected one not because I think it's true, but because I think it's illustrative. And it kind of encapsulates this understanding of life. Um, but as a certain website says, everything that you do comes back to you, whether good or bad. We're a reflection of what we put out into the world. If you constantly use and abuse people, life will use and abuse you. If you dedicate your life to doing good, you will be rewarded. Stay positive and do you. I love that. But, so, in other words, if, if you want your life to turn out good, then you must dedicate yourself to doing good. But, so if that's true of the future, then that's true of the past too. That if your life is good, then you must have already done something good to deserve it. So if your career is going well, then that means you were a hard worker. If your family is going well, it means you were a good parent and you made the right choices. If your relationships were going well, it means you probably loved people well or there was something attractive about you that, that made you have all these relationships. And billions of people believe this. It's not just one religion or one place in the world. It's, a, it's, a, it's commonly held by almost every group of people on the face of the planet. And there's a reason for that, I think. I think the reason for that is because there's something natural about, our, about the human heart that actually wants to take credit for the things that we do. You know, nobody goes to college just as an intellectual exercise, right? Kevin hasn't been slaving himself in, do, in medical school at the end going, well, you don't have anything to show for it, but, you know, at least you tried your hardest. Like, no, he wants, he wants the, the paper. He wants the, the documentation that says, 
my input equal this output? It's part of the way that we try to control our environment. We want to take credit for the things that we do right. And so inversely, if your life starts to go poorly, then it's natural to ask, what did I do wrong? Am I being punished for something? And and this is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, all of us, even at one point or another, regardless of how long we've been in the church, have, have subscribed to this view of the world. Now, the second... Um, way to try to explain tragedies is not to blame the victims, but it's to blame the perpetrators. Now, who are the perpetrators? Well, in a terroristic act, it's easy. You just go, well, it's the people that pulled the trigger. Or it's the people that, you know, uh, fed them the rhetoric, that's the new term, uh, to, to those who pulled the trigger. They're the ones to blame. But what about a natural disaster? Ah, then you, you know, Again, our, our human tendency is to look around for someone to point the finger at. And, and we will find someone to do it. So if, if we're kind of, you know, religious in nature, maybe we'll point the finger at God. If we're not, then we'll point it at luck, or we'll point it at the universe, or we'll point it at life. We'll insert some kind of higher authority to, to hold responsible for the tragedy. In other words, here's how it breaks down. The one view holds responsible the people that are under the tower, and the other one holds responsible the people that are over the tower. And and in the over the tower, it kind of goes this way. You know, basically, people are good. They're hardworking. They try their best. So why do bad things happen to them? It's because the universe is unfair. It's because evolution just doesn't give a damn. It's because life sucks and then you die. Or it's because or it's because God is unfair. It's because God is cruel. It's because God is distant. It's his fault that these things happen. And it's so and it's interesting because the if you hold this view long enough, what happens to you? You you either become cold and you shut off the injustices of the world and you just block your ears and you close your eyes because you're just, you're numb to them. Or you become so jaded and, and, and full of bitterness that you just rail against any higher authority. And that's the world that we live in. In a nutshell. We run to those two alternatives. We either blame the victim or we blame the perpetrator. And Jesus comes on the scene and he goes, no. Both of those are wrong. Neither one is the way that we should understand these things. And here's what he does. In verse 3, he says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. It's, it's, it's so interesting because he, he goes, on the one hand, no, don't, don't blame the victims. But on the other hand, repent. Don't blame God. So let's talk about the first part. The first part, he says, no. Do you think that when people suffer, they're being paid for their sins? Do you think that those Muslims, because they worship the, a different way than you, deserve to have 
someone come into their mosque and murder and cut them down in the midst of their worship? Do you think that 9-11 was uh, God's retribution for our nation turning its back on Him? Jesus says flatly, blankly, without restriction, no. Their suffering is not punishment for sin. And you think this is a one-time event? Jesus always gives this answer. Throughout the Bible, look at John 9. Disciples come up to a man who's born blind, and his disciples go, Hey, Jesus, did he sin, or was it his parents? And Jesus says, Neither. Job, a man of incredible suffering, had everything taken away from him, and three of his supposed friends come along, and they start asking questions. They pepper him with questions, and they go, Hey, what did you do wrong? You must have slipped up somewhere. God doesn't just do this to anybody. And you ever get to the end of the book of Job? Do you ever endure that far? When God actually does show up on the scene and he starts giving out his opinion of the way things go, he turns to those three friends. He goes, I'm furious at you. In fact, you better pray that Job prays for you because if not, I'm coming for you. That's how wrong you are. Jesus says things are, they don't happen. Suffering is not retribution for sin. But as soon as we get comfortable and go, okay, then we're off the hook. In the same breath, he says, but unless you repent, you too are going to perish. See, if Jesus only said no, then that gets us off the hook. But who does it put on the hook? It puts God on the hook. So if God's not on the hook and we're not on the hook for, for the things that we do, then what in the world is going on? Jesus says, these things didn't happen because they were somehow worse off than you. But unless you realize that you're just as sinful as they are, then a much bigger tower is going to fall on you. That's scary. But I think the truth is he's trying to show us something about our own hearts. And it's something that we don't like to believe. It's something that we don't want to recognize. But it's something that's fundamental to understanding the good news of the gospel. Because here's the thing. We, we think that if, if God is going to love us, that it means that we can't be that bad. Or... We are so bad that he can't possibly love us. It's one or the other, right? Either we're not so bad and God loves us because we're, you know, we're not really that bad kids. We sort of try our best and we, we get an E for effort. Or we are bad and God doesn't love us and he's out to pay us retribution. And I, I love thinking about the gospel this way. That the good news of Jesus means that we are simultaneously more sinful than we could possibly know. And at the same time, we are more loved than we possibly dared hope. And, and people that understand the gospel hold those two things in tension. Because God is a God of pure grace. He doesn't pay us back for our sins. And so here's the one hand of it. Think about all the, thing, the times that you've screwed up. Think of all the times that you've blown it over the course of your life where you've fallen short. 
I know, right? <laughs> okay, just think of one. <laughs> Did God immediately give you what you deserved when that happened? When you lied and never got caught for it, did he strike you down? When you made a stupid choice that should have ruined your life, did it? Or are you still here? When you betrayed friends and those friends are still in your life and you scratch your head and you go, why? When you turn your back on God, but you came this morning and the building is still standing. See, there's no person on earth who has gotten the full consequences for their failures. Because what the Bible says is the wages for our failures, for our sin, when we turn our backs on God, the wages for those things is death. And yet all of us are sitting here, we're still breathing. So what is going on? Jesus said, if if you really knew what was in your heart, if you really knew what you were capable of, you wouldn't assume that God owes you a good life at all. And yet, we have verses like Matthew 5.45, where it says, Jesus says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I was having a debate with a friend one time about this verse, and, and they were saying to me, see, it says right there, God sends both good and bad things on everyone. And he kind of used it as a justification to shake his fist at God and go, why haven't you sent more sun than rain? Because it says you send both on everybody, but you seem to send rain on me. I'm going, you're not seeing this correctly. If you, Think about it this way. If you were a farmer and it hadn't rained for three months and suddenly the, the heavens opened up, would that be a bad thing or a good thing? And he goes, oh. It's not saying that God sends both bad and good. It says God's saying God sends both good and good to both good and bad. That's what he's getting at. Every morning you wake up. Take this morning. The fact that we had a beautiful, gorgeous sunrise. Is God repaying you for your failures? No, he's giving you a second chance. And later in the week when he sends rains that, that, that allow crops to grow so that food can be put on the table, what is that? It's God providing you provision even though you turn your back and try to provide for yourself without his help. See, what it means when, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death means that the due payment that we think of the paycheck that you get at the end of the week you get what you've earned that week right the work that you put in equals the amount that you get in return and what God is saying is when you total up the sum parts of our all of, all of our weeks all of us when it gets to that line that says amount it should say in bold black letters death and yet over the top of it, for, all, for every single one of us, God himself has wrote in red pen over that word, crossed it out, and wrote life instead. He's gracious. And that's, 
That's the gospel. That we are far more evil and far more lost than we want to admit to ourselves. And yet, at that same moment, we are far more loved and pursued than we could possibly fathom. And people who understand this gospel, people who can hold those things in tension, are the ones that walk closely with God and who aren't surprised by the world. And who live with a depth of relationship with Jesus that nobody else gets to experience. Because Jesus is saying, if you don't see the depth of your sin and the height of God's grace for you, then you're going to be smug instead of happy when things go well. And when things don't go well, you're going to be devastated instead of full of hope and endurance. Because with the gospel, it it changes everything. It it changes the way that you see tragedy. It changes the way that you endure tragedy. In other words, he's saying, you don't get to blame the people under the tower, and you don't get to blame the person over the tower. I, I was just talking with somebody about this. So who do you blame? Are, who, who do we hold responsible then? Us collectively. The, the collective sum of our experience together is who we hold responsible. And we look at the world and we see that it's broken and we're not surprised by it, but we feel that we, we don't just point responsibility to others, we feel responsible ourselves. I was feeling that way when I saw the things in New Zealand. Because I'm thinking, God, what a world we've made. This is not the world that you intended it to be. You created a world where nobody experiences that, where everyone gets to live without pain and without loss and without suffering and without death. For eternity, that was your plan for us. And we messed it up. We walked away from you. I walked away from you. So you don't look at the tragedies of the world and feel smug that somehow they're worse sinners than you. You look at the tragedies of the world and you feel brokenness because you know that your sin is probably worse than those that were slaughtered. And that was Paul's way of dealing with everything. He goes, I'm the worst of all sinners. You want to find a sinner? Just look. You don't have to look any farther than me. See, I, some of the most comforting words I, I can think of when it comes to to Jesus, our Savior, is to is to know that it's okay to hate evil and suffering because He does too. That He came to deal with it once and for all, but. But he, he came to, to deal with it in us without destroying us. So, so how do we respond to this then? Um, there are lots of places in the Bible that um, talk specifically to people that are enduring, that are enduring suffering. That, that where God has specific counsel and wisdom and comfort to share with people who have towers falling on them. But this isn't one of them. Because who's Jesus talking to? 
He's talking to the people who haven't had a tower fall on them. He's talking to the people that are looking at other people experiencing tragedy, but they themselves seem to have have missed the bullet. And they're asking Jesus, what do we do? In other words, these there are people that are living in sort of a, a trouble-free stretch. They're kind of like Americans <laughs> in that regard. Um, and Jesus says, when you're going through a period that seems to be going well for you, I have some wisdom. And what does he say to us? He says, repent, or you too will perish. Ouch. To you that didn't have the tower fall on you. He has a warning. And the warning goes a little like this. If you find your place in a, yourself in a place of relative comfort, watch out because you're actually in a place of great spiritual danger. You think, like, how in the world could that possibly be true? But one of the greatest crises that you could ever face in your life is to have no crisis at all, spiritually speaking. One of the greatest spiritual trials that you could ever face is to have no trial. And there's no more dangerous spiritual waters that you could tread through than for the waters themselves to seem tranquil in your life. When others are experiencing trouble, but you're not. See, we always think of the times when we go through the stuff, when everything hits the fan, that that's really the test of our faith. And and it is in many ways. But what Jesus is saying to these people that aren't experiencing those things is, you're in just as much trouble. And you're, you're in just as much need to repent. Now, why in the world would he say that to people that are experiencing relative ease? Because we always think of repentance as, uh, we mentioned this last week, right? That repentance is admitting that you're wrong. And we, we always think that um, to repent of something means that you kind of are saying you're sorry over the bad things that you've done. That it's sort of admitting uh, wrong actions. I broke the rules. But Jesus is calling these people to repent, and they're probably the ones that obeyed the laws. They're the ones who pray all the time, and they're the religious folks, and they're the ones who read their Bibles, and they're the ones who go to worship, and they seem to do all the right things, and their lives are going relatively well, at least compared to the other people. And Jesus calls them to repent. Why would he do that? It's because we've failed to understand something about repentance. And we talked about it last week. I want to clarify even more this week. That repentance is to turn away from sin. And here's the essence of sin. Sin is not just you doing bad things. The essence of sin is you substituting yourself for God. It's putting yourself in the place that only God should occupy. Or it's finding something else to put in the place that only God should occupy. It's trying to be your own savior and your own king. That's the essence of what it means to, to, to have sin. It's a disposition. It's, it's not looking to God as your salvation, but insisting that you can do the job yourself. 
Now, don't you see then, if, if that's true, why it's actually the easy times, the good times, the comfortable times, that are the times when you're most likely to do that? I mean, it is for me. Yeah, I mean, when things go badly, when there are tragedies, there is a tendency to medicate ourselves. And we look to other things as a replacement for God. That's true. And that's sin too. That's turning from Him. But it's during the trouble-free times that you actually inevitably shift your heart from God to what? Good things that He's brought into your life. And Romans one twenty five puts it this way, that they, they, talking about all of us, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And fan, this is true especially during good times. Because when things go well, when, you, when you've closed on that new home, when you drive that new car into the driveway, when you have that girlfriend or boyfriend who adores you and thinks the world of you, when you got that promotion at work, we look to those things as a replacement source for our joy, our worth, our satisfaction, our provision. And it happens without us even knowing it, which is why it's so dangerous. And this, this passage, part of the reason why we're covering it is because um, it's been incredibly um, helpful for me. And, and God seems to use uh, the words of Jesus here in, in this pretty often as soon as I get a little prideful about anything. And, I, I, you know, you, you bump up against a lot of people and you have a lot of relationships when, when you're in a position like mine. And you tend to interact with a lot of people that are going through some difficult times. And the tendency when you, when you counsel, when you pray, when you're in relationship with people that are going through tough times is, is to think to yourself, I must have done something right in order to not be going through what they're going through. And oftentimes, I'll hear the Spirit say to me, do you think it's because you're better that I've allowed you to, to experience grace? No. Repent. You're substituting a good life for my good grace. Pursue me. Don't pursue that. When my marriage is going really well and I'm counseling people whose aren't, don't think that somehow you've been a better spouse to deserve what you have. Repent. And trust the fact that I'm in the midst of your marriage and that I'm doing something in theirs too. When your tendency is to, to, to think that things are going well at work for you because you, you've, you've kind of done all the right things when other people haven't and you're looking down your nose at your coworker and you're thinking to yourself, if they could just be like me, they would experience what I'm experiencing. Repent! Your job is not your source of provision. God alone is. 
And God could remove it in an instant if he chose to, but he didn't. And you get to go to work because he loves you and he wants to provide for you. So here's the question. What's going well? What's going well in your life? Is your career, your relationships, your children, your health? Praise God for it. But be aware and ask yourself the question, are you allowing that thing to become a replacement for him? Because your natural tendency will be to stockpile your identity into those things and to look down on others who aren't doing as well as you in those areas. See, this isn't just a problem for pastors. This is a problem for everybody. And I think the Spirit wants to, to remind us and to speak into our lives. Don't, don't, don't we dare look down on anything. Don't, don't look at any good thing in our lives other than just sheer undeserved grace. Don't take credit for it. Give thanks for it. But even more so, give thanks for the giver of that good thing and know that he's the ultimate gift that we need. Because here's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from that thing that we, we used to look to for joy and turning our eyes to the one who gave it and then saying, I want my joy not to be in that, but to be in you. I want you to, to be the the most beautiful thing in my world. I want your presence to be the thing that fills my heart with with love and with joy and with gratitude. I want to adore you far more than anything. I, I want your pleasure and I want your glory to be my joy and my crown and my worth and my significance. Because the truth is, and here's why it's so important to do this in the good times is because one day those good times will end and the trouble-free stretch will be over. And if you've invested your worth into anything but Jesus himself, you will perish. That's Jesus' warning. And so that's why he's saying there's no more important time to look at your life and ask, where have I turned away from God as the center and the jewel of my entire existence than when everything is going well? Do that work now so that when the day of trouble comes, you will stand on a foundation that will be able to endure no matter what waves crash on your shore. Because if you don't, then anything else that you do is built on sand and it will wash away. Some of you have been through those storms and you can testify to the fact that everything perishes except Jesus himself. And to those of you who have experienced it, let me just be the mouthpiece for you to the rest of us and and just encourage all of us to put your hope in Him. See, repentance isn't just saying sorry for the bad things, but it's 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 realizing that you've overtrusted the good things. Breaking rules is just a symptom of sin. The disease of sin is being your own savior by trusting in something other than Jesus for your wisdom 
and your self-worth and your salvation and your redemption. And it's during the safe times, it's the comfortable times, the prosperous times, when that disease spreads through the system. And so take the vaccine now. Before the symptoms turn their head on you. Repentance is not just for when you've blown it. When you understand the gospel and when you understand what it means to turn from everything and to turn to Him, then you realize that it's not just something that you do on occasion when you've fallen into the really bad stuff. It's something that you do constantly throughout your day when you turn from your self-centeredness to His grace and His forgiveness and His wisdom again and again and again. Martin Luther, when he kicked off the Protestant Reformation, started it with 95 theses that he nailed to a chapel door. And the very first one was all of life is repentance. And this is what he meant. All of life. Now, does this sound like terrible news? You're like, oh gosh, I can't. How would I even like go through my day like that? That sounds like the worst Monday ever. We're just constantly going, oh, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that. You know, looking at the bad stuff. What a downer, right? Jesus ends the parable with, or ends the the story with a parable about a fig tree, right? And what does the tree represent? Us. And what, what's on the tree? Or at least what is he looking for? Fruit. Do, is fruit a good thing or a bad thing? Maybe you don't like figs. I don't know. Imagine your favorite fruit. And you just had a bowl full of them every single morning. Would you go, ah, not strawberries again? <laughs> you wouldn't, right? You would look forward to it. it when you bite into fruit, it tastes sweet. It's a good thing. It's a life-giving thing. It sustains you. It provides for you. It gives nourishment to your body and it gives texture to your palate. And what is that fruit? And what is the what is Jesus driving at? What's the fruit on the tree? It's repentance. That in the same way, when we think of all of life this way, and we think of getting to, it's not a have to, it's a get to. We turn from looking for our joy in our kids and we look to look to it in our Savior, then we can rightly love our kids. And it, it can be such a, an instantaneously shift of our hearts where we go, yep, I was trusting in that again. God, you're gracious and you love me and you want to pull me out of this. Because ultimately, if, if I look to any other thing, it's not going to be fruit. It's not going to be sweet. It's going to be the opposite of that. It's going to bring death and despair and pride and falling water. <laughs> See, if, if when you... Th- it's such a broken word, isn't it? The word repentance. More than any other pers- people on the face of the planet, when we... People have been given grace by God and and welcomed into his family. 
when we think about that word, our hearts should be full of love and joy and gratitude. We should be thinking to ourselves, I can't wait to repent. Do you think of it that way? If you don't, you need to repent over your thinking of repentance. <laughs> and the, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you know then? How, I'll just end with this. How do you know that repentance leads to life? How, how do you know that thinking this way about it is, is the way that we should be thinking about it? Well, I mean, look at who's telling us this. It's Jesus himself, isn't it? See, we think that repentance means I, I turn from the bad things, I come back to Dad, and Dad is going to punish me for the bad things. If I, if I repent, if I come home to him, if I admit that I'm wrong, or if, if I admit that I'm self-centered, or if I admit that I've looked for my joy and my security, my significance in something, he's... He's going to slap me on the wrist. He's going to punish me in some way. He's going to extract payment from me for in some way. And that that's never the case. You want to know how I know? Because Jesus is the only one, the only person who's ever lived, who, does, who, who lived better than absolutely everyone else, the only person who never deserved a tower to fall on him, and he got the biggest tower of all. And he went to the cross as payment for our sin. That's the whole reason God can cross out the word death and write life instead, because the pen was written with Jesus' own blood. And because he lived a perfect life, the life that we can't live, and because he got the biggest tower of all falling on him, that means that, that he got what we deserve so that we could get what he deserved. That's why you can know every time you go back to your Heavenly Father. No matter what bad thing you've done or no matter what good thing you've trusted in, the moment you come home, you get Jesus' robe, you get Jesus' ring, you get Jesus' sandals, and you get the Father's embrace. Every time. Now, I, I can't leave it there. Because Jesus doesn't leave it there. I wish I could. But Jesus, man, he knows how to write a cliffhanger, doesn't he? Because the very last words of this section, it says, Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, great. If not, then cut it down. Um, I'm trying to think about... I've been praying about how to put this sensitively, and I don't think I can. There's a timeline to the opportunity to repent. He's talking specifically about Israel and the fact that at some point, Israel's ability to accept and to repent and to come to Jesus and to be welcomed into this new family that God was creating. It has a timeline, and, and the, the, it seems to be extended a little bit. But ultimately, if, if the fruit of repentance doesn't appear on the tree, it's going to get cut down. 
And I I wish I could just tell you, because it feels like the loving thing to do, but it's not. To just say, look, you've got as many chances as you need, and like, just so just keep going as you were, and maybe God will bring you in someday. I can't do that. Because at some point, the people that resist God's prompting to repent get cut down. At some point, the last tower does fall on them. And I, I, as a pastor, I'm not loving you well if I withhold that information from you. So how long are you willing to wait until it's too late? Jesus wants you to know that he is digging around in the soil of your life and he is fertilizing it. That's why you're hearing the message this morning is because he he desperately, desperately wants you not to be cut down, but to bear fruit for him. And I think about the people in my own life and I think about how many times I've shrunk back from telling them the good news of the gospel because I just think, ah, I'll get around to it. I would tell you, I was so convicted this week reading this passage, and I just think, when, when, how long am I going to wait? How long are you going to wait? How long will we wait? If I don't say this to condemn us or to kind of put undue pressure on us, but just to say, listen to the Spirit, and if He prompts you to share about Jesus, I don't care who it's with, or where you happen to be, please follow that prompting and be obedient. And watch the fruit that he produces. And be okay with whatever tower may fall on you as a result of having stepped out in obedient faith. Because that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus got the ultimate tower so that we won't get it. And then we can look at any other tower and we go, well, it's not the one that Jesus endured. Therefore, I can endure it because he's not just, he didn't just go before me, he's with me and he'll protect me. And he'll protect you. Let's pray. Father, such a interesting, confusing, challenging story. I pray that you would give us life in the midst of this. Teach us when we see tragedy not to be smug and not to be despairing, but to be angry with the sin that we unleashed into the world and to pray for your intervention. God, I pray that we, in that, would would be people that continually turn to you, continually bring our our self-centeredness and our pride and our arrogance and our misdeeds to you and ask God that you, like a good dad does, wipe them away, clean us up again, put your Holy Spirit in us and teach us to walk with you. That's all we could possibly ask for and it's the best news that we could possibly receive. Pray in Christ's name.